Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called Resilient Faith, we'll explore what it means to have a resilient faith in the middle of a digital age. Each week, we'll explore what it means to have faith in a world with strange new customs, habits, and gods. So let's turn now to part three of our series, Faith for the Generations. Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to this, the third part of our series that we're doing today on resilient faith. And resilient faith, this series, is one that we're doing where we discover what it takes to have a resilient faith in what I'm calling a rapidly changing world. Now, that rapidly changing world is one that you experience all the time, even though we may not describe it or put our finger on it right away. It's, this, it's the world of the digital Babylon, the world where these things right here, our screens, are the norm in our life, right? We use them way too much. We may not like to admit it, but some of us, three, four, five, six hours a day is spent on our screens. Uh, and even though we don't like to admit it, What we need to admit is that because we spend that amount of time on our screens, sometimes upwards of a third of our day, there is a lot of our lives that are grounded here. So not only do we spend a lot more time here, but we start to create our relationships here. We talked about this last week just a little bit in terms of Facebook groups and how our Facebook groups are actually uh, directing our lives towards connection and relationship. And not only do that, but we also find relationships in, in this world. This is the first time in history where you can find your spouse digitally. Like we can form those relationships and connect in that digital way. And along with the new groups and the new ways to spend our time, our screens offer us a lot of new ways to think, right? You thought us children of the 80s and 90s knew everything. We don't hold a candle to the children of Gen Z. I mean, they know everything, right? Information is everywhere. It's at our fingertips. In fact, let me just show you how true this is for just a minute. If you're here with me in person or online, go ahead and pull out your phones real quick. Let's just see if you can figure this out real quick. So what day of the week, not date, but I want you to tell me what day of the week did World War II end? Tuesday. Somebody said Tuesday. Yep, that's right. Tuesday. Tuesday, May 8th, 1945 is the day of the week that it ended. And you didn't know you were a historian, did you, right? But that's, that's reality. Now, here's another one. What is the longest word in the world? What is the longest word in the world? Someone said anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yeah, you didn't look in your phone, did you? That's old information. I, I understand you believe that's true. That's not reality anymore. It's actually this word right here, pneumono-ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconesis. Uh, I didn't get that last part right. That's all right. It's, it's the longest word, and it's actually just a really, really long word. It's 45 characters, I think, and all. You can count them up if you want while we got them on the screen. It's, it's a really long word that refers to a lung disease that's contracted from the inhalation of fine silica particles, specifically from a volcano. That, that's exactly what it is. Now, how many of you just think you stink at math? Anybody in here think you stink at math? Yeah, we got a few. I'm, I'm one of those. I'll raise my hand up to that. I want to I prove that you do not stink at math. Get your phone out. Tell me what the root, the square root of 443,556 is. 443,556. We got a few. Oh, you don't want to say it, do you? 
Oh, you can say, no, you don't want to say it in church? I understand. I understand. For those of you who can't see what's going on here, it's 666. That's right. That's the I know you didn't want to you didn't want to admit that but that that is the answer. So so we're we're brilliant, right? We're mathematicians, we're historians, we're all these wonderful things and we didn't even know it until our screens were placed in our laps. Now any of you who are parents will already know this, but younger generations they always know more than older generations, right? My son is five years old. He constantly tells me and his mother, he doesn't need us, or he doesn't need us. Dad, I know that. I know that already. I don't need you. Mom, I know that already, right? Apparently, all that, that I and his mother have learned over the course of several decades, that's just automatically by osmosis absorbed into his little brain upon entry into the world. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to do anything like that. They can just know it. And the truth is, is this know-it-all mentality isn't really new, But what is new is the quick and often accurate access to information. Now, this quick access often creates what I'm going to describe as a generational and a relational gap. Now, this is one of the major problems that we discover in digital Babylon. In fact, I had a conversation with one of you earlier this week about this very thing. You may be a parent, you may be a grandparent or a tutor or your students, you know, they come to you and they start asking for your help. And in the context of that reality, You feel lost, and they know you're lost. So guess what? They don't come to you. They don't come to you anymore. They just go straight to their screens in moments like that. They don't need you for information when they can just as quickly go to their screens. (laughs) And when you need help with your screens, you go to them, right? And this is the great reversal of our society, that we as the older generation are now going to the younger generation in order to seek out their help. And in the middle of this reversal, here's what happens. We feel lost. We feel the loss of relationship between the generations, And we feel the loss because in the context of this new world, we have lost our role. Historically, generational connections have been grounded in in what the older generation can teach the younger, driven largely by the handing over of vital information from one generation to the next. But in this new digital world, we don't need each other for information. I can get all the information I ever wanted to on my own. I don't need to go to anyone for that. When relationships are formulated and solidified by the transfer of information from one person to another, when that process dies, so does the relationship. And this is why so many feel the generational disconnect in our society. We no longer have a role to play in each other's lives, so we aren't in each other's lives. We feel the loss because we have lost our role. But in the middle of this social shift, there's an interesting way that we've discovered resilient disciples avoiding this problem. Instead of losing these relationships, what we discover in the third practice of resilient disciples is that resilient disciples forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Resilient disciples absolutely have an intimacy with Jesus. That's the first thing that we discovered, is that they have this deep and abiding intimacy with Jesus that others don't have. But they also have found and created meaningful relationships within the community of faith. Their faith is one that creates a sense of belonging and connection. The church is the place where they feel that they belong to. 88% of resilient disciples said that, in comparison to 43% of churchgoers. Now remember, churchgoers are those who are going habitually to church all the time, but 
those 40, only 43% actually feel like they belong to that environment as opposed to almost 90% of the resilient disciples. Resilient disciples feel connected to a community of faith, 82% of them, as compared to 33% who do not feel connected to a community, or 33% of habitual churchgoers who feel connected. All right. And just in case you're one of those parents who feel like you don't, don't uh, offer anything or don't, can't offer anything, get this. 72% of resilient disciples admire the faith of their parents. Right, so if you're a parent out there and you say, I can no longer offer anything, resilient disciples among us have discovered that their parents are the ones who can offer, and they offer a faith that they admire, 72% of them in that case. Now, when it comes to our faith, we know this for a long time, but relationships matter, not just our relationship with God, but relationships horizontally as well, relationships with all around us. And long-term faith requires this sort of deep connection. Connections with family? Yes, absolutely. But like the church attendance, family relationships are necessary, but they're insufficient. In order to develop a life of vibrant, resilient faith, we need to connect and belong. This is what the research has shown us, right? And this is an idea that we see at work all throughout the stories of our faith. Paul is perhaps the most famous for this. He partners with Silas, and he partners with Timothy. And of course, Timothy, we get to see uh, Eunice, the mother of Timothy, and Lois, the grandmother. And so Timothy has a faith. But when, when Paul, you know, he could no longer partner with Mark... He didn't leave him on his own, but instead, Paul decides to hand Mark over to Barnabas because he understands that young disciples coming up in the faith need these types of mentoring relationships in their life. But there, there are other examples, too. It's not just Paul and, and his pupils, but we have examples of Elijah passing the mantle on to Elisha. We have Moses handing over the reins of leadership to Joshua. We have Naomi uh, traveling uh, with Ruth, and when Ruth was sent away by Naomi, Naomi, Ruth said, no, I need to stay with you. I need to stay with you so that your God can become my God, your people, my people. And, and they live together in this relationship. And one of the more interesting mentoring relationships that we see in Scripture is actually another Old Testament story between Eli and Samuel. Now, Samuel is the last judge historically of Israel. It's a period of time just prior to the kings of Israel where the judges ruled. They discerned the law of God, and they communicated that to the people. And Samuel is the last judge. In fact, Samuel is the one who anoints the very first king of Israel, Saul. And Samuel, as he's growing up, is sitting under the tutelage of Eli. And he shows up on the scene in a world that was dramatically different than the world that was previous. Right? He's in this transitional world. He's not deeply embedded in the world where the judges ruled. He's now in a world where everything is starting to change. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we get to see a little bit of the difference. Listen to what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. So look at both of those things there at the end. The word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. If it's rare now, it wasn't in the past. 
right? If there's not many visions now, that's not the case in the past. There used to be lots of visions. The word of the Lord used to come out in abundance. And something has changed in the world that Samuel is living in. In the past, God spoke to Samson. He spoke to Deborah. He spoke to Gideon through signs that were amazing. And Eli knew how God operated in the past, but he doesn't exactly. And I want you to hear this carefully. Even though Eli doesn't know how God is operating in the present, he does know how God operated in the past. He knows how. And the young boy, Samuel, he knows nothing else than the present. All he knows is what's going on right now in this world, in this environment. And as he's living in this world, he needs someone to give him some clarity. This world, for Samuel, is all he has ever known. And one night, everything changes for the young boy, Samuel and for Eli. And it was an intergenerational relationship between Eli and Samuel that made all the difference in the world. Our story actually continues in verse 2 in this way. Look at where it picks up. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, think about that connection back with verse 1 where he wasn't able to see, was lying down in his usual place. It goes on in verse 3, The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called to Samuel. Listen to what God said. He calls out his name, and Samuel answers, Here I am. And he ran to Eli, and he said, Here I am. You called me? But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. And so he went and he laid down. You see, Samuel did exactly what Eli had instructed him to do, but the voice didn't stop calling out. In fact, the word of the Lord came to Samuel again. And again, he went to Eli. And again, Eli told him, go lay down. I didn't call you. It wasn't me. And he went back and he laid down. And again, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And again, Samuel responded. And again, Samuel went to Eli, and Eli said the same thing. I did not call you. Go back and lay down. This happens a total of three times. But on the third time, Eli starts to realize and recognize what's happening. And God calls out to Samuel. And Samuel said to Eli this third time, Here I am. You called me. But this time, Eli didn't tell him to lay down. The story continues in this way. Listen to how it picks up here in verse 8. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling to the boy. And so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls to you this time, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You see, Eli, who could not see well and had not witnessed visions like this, could still recognize the word of the Lord. He understood and could interpret what was happening in that moment. And this is exactly what Samuel needed. Samuel had all of the information at his disposal. Someone had spoken in the still of the night. Someone had called Samuel by name. So he had the information. What he did not have was the interpretation. He had the information at his disposal, knowing what was taking place in the environment, but he did not know how to properly interpret the information that was in front of him. And this is what Samuel needs in this moment. He needs someone who can help him interpret exactly what's going on. He needs someone who can give him clarity about how to interpret all that he sees around him. And this is exactly what we need today. You see, the next generation that is living around us does not need our information, but what they do need is our interpretation. 
In this new digital world, this is where the work needs to be done. We must accept that information dissemination may be beyond us. You may not know more than your grandchild. You may not know more than your child who's working on that tablet, and you may not know how to figure that thing out. But interpretation is what draws us together. This is definitely true across generational divides, but it's true for every relationship. The power of connection and belonging is the clarifying interpretation. Like married couples, and I, I see married couples from time to time in my office who they go to a counselor, they come to a pastor for interpretation. They don't come for their information. You know, I've never sat down in a pastoral counseling section session and introduced new information. Right? The couple has all of the information at their disposal. In fact, they have more information than they likely want to share with me at any given point in time. But they do need some new interpretation. They need to be able to walk away and say, oh, you helped me see things in such a different way. And when we don't have people in our lives to offer this fresh perspective, then we will grow weaker and weaker. We crave talking partners for interpretation regardless of our age. And when we don't have those partners outside of ourselves, we become those partners. We're the ones who just continue to cycle in in interpretation. And our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. When Samuel went to Eli, he didn't know this is, that is why he was going, but Eli knew his role, and Eli offered that interpretation. And we see in the following verses, Samuel went back to bed, and verse 10 continues in this way. It says, The Lord came and stood there, calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. You see, Eli had given him the interpretation and Samuel was able to change his behavior the next time he heard the call. Same information, but different behavior once he had been given the interpretation. You see, there was real transformation in Samuel's life on the other side of the interpretation. Samuel responded differently the next time he encountered the very same situation. And when you and I find ourselves connecting and belonging this creates a new perspective for us, and we too can experience transformation. We can think differently. We can act differently. We can react differently. And one of the key reasons that we in our lives repeat the same self-destructive behavior over and over again is because we've never experienced fresh perspective or new interpretation we respond how we've always responded, how our parents or our grandparents responded, how our friends react. But if we develop deeper faith connections across generational divides, we will start to discover fresh perspective and interpretation that leads to transformation. And the challenge, of course, that comes with a practice like this, the practice of developing intergenerational relationships, is is that there is no prescription for relationship formation, right? There's not a five-step program out there for developing relationships like this, and, and you don't really want there to be, do you? We, we want natural connections and natural senses of belonging that just sort of come together. If I feel like a project or like I'm a part of a program, then the relationship in one way or another feels inauthentic. But while there isn't a prescription, there are some principles that seem to show up in people who get this right. And I just want to outline a few of these for us here as I wrap things up this morning. Resilient disciples who hold these types of relationships, first of all, have developed a capacity for vulnerability. 
You know, in a world of isolation around us, vulnerability is one of the fastest ways to rebuild trust. This is why I believe AA programs thrive and programs like them because there's a vulnerability that exists at the core of the relationship. Even in our story this morning, we see this vulnerability at work. Well, I didn't read it all to us, but Samuel returns back to his bed, heard the word of the, world, word of the Lord, which was harsh, and it was harsh against the house of Eli. And the next morning when Eli asked Samuel what had happened, Samuel was naturally hesitant to share because it was a word of the Lord that was harsh against Eli. But Eli urges him, it doesn't matter how hard the word of the Lord is, Eli says, I need you to share it. So Samuel did. It says in verse 18, so Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him. And then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. You see, in this space, in this is a moment of extreme vulnerability for Eli. He could have locked up, right? This young boy doesn't know what he's talking about. My boys are good boys. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with my house. But he doesn't do that. He's vulnerable, confessional, and understanding in that moment. And the church has long thrived in this space of vulnerability. And this is the space of confession to one another. Confession for us is that spiritual act in the church where relationships are formed because vulnerability is practiced. And this is why the, the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, would say in his letter early on, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession opens the door for vulnerability. But in addition to developing vulnerability, we also need to identify champions of faith. All right, this is a practice that is particularly important for parents, but it applies to us all. You see, family is the primary location of spiritual development. No one else in your child's life is ever going to take your place, parents or guardians. You're it. You are the primary space of spiritual development for their life, but you're not the only place. As I said earlier, family relationships are necessary. You cannot get around them, but they are also insufficient. They're not enough. Resilient disciples have been able to form meaningful relationships beyond their family. Samuel is with Eli, as you see, not Hannah, his mother. Silas, or Timothy rather, is with Paul, not with his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. They had meaningful relationships with their family, each of these young pupils, but not only their family. Parents, grandparents, one of the best things you can do for your children now is to introduce them to other faithful adults. Because there will come a time, trust me, where your children do not like you. I've worked with teenagers long enough in my life to realize that there is always a point where they no longer enjoy being around their parents. They no longer trust exactly what their parents are saying. And when that happens, you want there to be someone who they can run to that you trust. So do the intentional work now of creating a pathway of identifying faith champions that they can go to. And finally, and this may be the only time you hear me say this during this series, but in order to develop meaningful relationships with other people, at some point in time, you're going to have to take some digital Sabbaths. Andy Crouch in his book, The TechWise Family, suggests that our screens should wake up after us and go to bed before us. And I would suggest that we take even more time away from our addiction to the blue light. Right? What, if, what if we not only just, you know, let our screens wake up after us and go to bed before us, but what if, what if we took an hour a day to turn them off? Or what if, what if, you know, every now and then we took one day a week or one week a year? I know that screens are a part of our life and they'll continue to be a part of our life, but brief moments of Sabbath 
are small moments of resistance that can help us build real life relationships. And this is absolutely a lesson that we learned during this pandemic. I'm sure you've seen memes like this one right here. Church on the sofa. This is, this is one that became very popular. It says, you know, church or the church in this will never replace church in person. And, you know, to a certain degree, I, I agree with this. I do. I agree completely with this. But probably not for the reasons that you think. What I see when I look at this image right here, this image of an empty couch, is an image of isolation. And many of our experiences this past year have been isolating. So while I agree that this right here will never replace the church, I think perhaps this image right here is the one that rests at the center of the church. This image with a couch scattered with a variety of generations of people on it. This is church with and for the generations. And these types of relationships cannot be formed without putting down our screens. And I would go even further to say that these types of relationships right here cannot be formed while we're sitting in pews like this. They need to take place on sofas. Studies show that children of parents who don't do this are less resilient, are more negative, and feel unimportant. And this is why moments of prayer like this are so important. Because we need to spiritually invest. We need to take the moments to be vulnerable. We need to take the moments to invest in faith champions for our children. And we need to take the moments to just take those digital Sabbaths. So as we close this morning in prayer, I want you to think about those three things, those three steps of how you can choose to be vulnerable with your children, grandchildren, the next generation that is around you, how you can choose to find faith champions, and how you can intentionally choose to put down the device, to turn the screen off, and to re-engage with those people who are right around you. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I thank you so much for your love and your passion for us. I ask Almighty God that today you might seal this word in our hearts, that you would empower us to become the people that you would have us to be, the people who love you and love others and demonstrate that love through deep and abiding relationships. Continue to be with us now and always. In Jesus' name. Amen.